bill is passed. Shut down, averted, just in time. The American people have won. Federal Florida funded for now, but a lot still on the line. It has been, you all know, this is my greatest gift to be sitting in this seat. Resignation final. I think we're at the point that we need to respect Mr. Hale's wishes. Still questions at Broward College. But in the case of Formula One and in the case of, uh, of, of Citadel, I paid for that. Ethics about face, the mayor under state scrutiny. Uh, I think there are, there are laws and there are rules and you have to follow them. And so if you pay for something, it is not a gift. I'm pretty sure this is a big mistake. Broward School, Beijing ties? South Florida students and the state's China fight. The big news of the week on the plate for the roundtable and you live this week in South Florida. Good Sunday morning, Sunday as in October 1st and crisis averted just a few hours before this morning's midnight deadline. At the 11th hour with millions braced for shutdown, Congress found the compromise to keep the government in business, though crisis temporarily postponed is probably much more accurate because another deadline looms. This spending runs out in 47 days. Our focus here, as always, is us, South Florida, and the local impacts right here at the airports, housing, veterans affairs, the people who arrange for your passports, parks, so much as the political wrangling goes on in those chambers at the Capitol. The National Federation of Federal Employees represents people who work across that national spectrum, and its president, Randy Irwin, grew up right here in Miami, and Randy Irwin is right here with us live today. So good to have you. Great to be here. Thank you. So you're in Washington now, though, right? Miami. I am. I'm Washington. two blocks from the White House. <laughs> Excellent. So I want to start out with, boy, I, you know, I was yesterday, last night, as I was thinking about what our conversation was going to be like, it was a very different conversation that I was expecting to have. So I guess a little bit of temporary good news. But Randy, can you go into sort of local, we are a local program and we talk all about South Florida. And I want to get a sense from you, the the breadth of the employee base here and the federal services right here in South Florida. Sure. Well, there, the state of Florida has 90,000 federal workers, and that makes up about 5% of the federal workforce. There's about 2 million uh, overall. Uh, we work, represent some of the workers down there at the VA uh, in, in Broward County. Uh, we have Agriculture Research Service down in Pinecrest. Uh, we also represent the passport workers, as you just mentioned. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's a lot, a lot of federal workers down there. And so this shutdown would have been had a huge impact on South Florida. And what have you been hearing from them this week? Because, you know, it was my sense no one was expecting this compromise as of last night. That's true. We're very relieved that Congress, you know, sanity prevailed and they, they got an agreement done. Uh, but there was a lot of worry. You know, uh, last time we had a 35 day shutdown. Uh, federal employees missed two paychecks and people don't realize it, but federal employees are 24 percent underpaid compared to people doing the same jobs in the private sector. Uh, only about 15 percent are in Washington. Eighty five are spread throughout the country and about 60 percent of federal employees uh, live paycheck to paycheck. So when they missed two paychecks, uh, that had really that had real consequences uh, for federal workers. And so, uh, you know, people were missing mortgage payments, rent payments, missing uh, credit card payments and having their credit card rates jacked up uh, in the wintertime. 
uh, last time they 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 were returning presents for Christmas, uh, you know, unwrapping them and returning them. Some were turning off their their uh, heat during the middle of winter. So that those are really the stakes uh, for folks that uh, that that live paycheck to paycheck when there's a shutdown. That's a that's kind of a, a big lesson to think about because I, I want to just clarify all the government workers when let's say there there has been a shutdown and there may well be coming up in November but the last one this time those employees do get their back pay so it's more of a cash flow issue than an actual work stoppage is that is that valid that, that's true and that's a big difference between the last shutdown and this one is that uh, you know uh, unions and other employee advocates uh, were able to uh, get legislation passed at the end of the last shutdown to guarantee that federal employees get back pay uh, for the time that they were furloughed or forced to work without pay during a shutdown so that definitely took you know some of the pressure off but but you know you got to remember that people don't know how long a shutdown is going to last. The last one was 35 days, but they've been getting longer and longer. And, you know, it wasn't really clear how this one would resolve itself. And so, you know, it looked like people were getting, we were pretty certain there was going to be a shutdown. And what if it goes, what if it doesn't just go one month? What if it goes on for two months? You know, there are limits to how long uh, people who live paycheck to paycheck can go before they're in pretty serious financial dire straits. Yeah, and so one, that's the real problem. 100%. And, and coming off of not a year past COVID shutdowns, that's, it's kind of like layer upon layer at the moment. I want to talk a little bit about the the service end of things, because that's sort of the other half of the calamity, is that all of these services, I don't think people sometimes realize what is federally funded that goes away in a kind of a shutdown. We spoke to uh, the heads of the airports here, Miami International and Fort Lauderdale International, and they were expecting business as usual. But I wanted to kind of bounce that off of you because with both air traffic controllers and TSA federally funded, how were you expecting to be airports business as usual? So it, it does vary by agency. Uh, some agencies are virtually shut down. Uh, air travel is one of the things that is you know, considered essential. And in the short term, it would be business as usual. But you know, TSA workers are some of the lowest paid federal employees that you'll find everywhere. Um, the way the last uh, shutdown you know, really kind of came to an end was that TSA workers couldn't afford to put gas in their cars to go to work after they had missed their second paycheck. And so, yeah, you could say it's business as usual. And until people start missing paychecks, you may be right in the short term. Uh, but but that once people start missing pay, then then uh, it, the, everything starts to crumble. I want to sort of talk about if there is a difference between that kind of atmosphere, air traffic controllers, essential. Um, those are kind of career people. Air traffic control is a career. You're in it for decades, mostly. Sure. Um, mm -hmm. The TSA agents, maybe not so much. And might it be much more easy for a TSA, a TSA agent to say, listen, uh, I just can't function like this. I'm getting another job. I mean, do you see that as an issue with a security issue at the airports? Uh, Sure. Yeah, we need to pay the TSA workers better. Absolutely. Uh, or else that's going to happen. If you don't look at things as a career or if, you know, objectively, I mentioned earlier, federal employees on average paid 24 percent less than people in the private sector. So everywhere across the federal government, we are seeing federal workers that are going, hmm, is it really worth it to 
to can I put my family through this, taking this kind of a pay cut in order to, you know, work for the federal government? And think about a VA nurse, you know, who's there because she cares for the American veteran, but she could go to a private hospital, uh, you know, across the street and make a lot more, but she sticks it out uh, to, to work at the VA. And, you know, we got We just got to do better or else or else, you know, we have we have severe problems recruiting and retaining and ultimately having the government that the American people deserve. Randy, aside from the practical effects, do you hear from your members any kind of politics involved? Are they focused on that at all? You know, of course we do. You know, we're uh, we're I like to say we're the most bipartisan union you'll find anywhere in America. <laughs> um, and we work equally with both Republicans and Democrats in Capitol Hill. We have to. Uh, but yeah, you know, we hear a lot about the politics. We try to stay above it, you know, really to get anything done in Washington. You got to You got to have bipartisan coalitions. And so, you know, a big one that we've been working on is wildland firefighters. Wildland firefighters uh, were about to reach a, a pay cliff uh, where they were going to lose half their pay. And, uh, you know, in bipartisan fashion, we got some language uh, included in this continuing resolution to avert that pay cliff uh, temporarily. But if you, if you go about it, uh, you know, and try to, you know, get close with one party and exclude the other, you know, you, you can't get anything done for your members. And, and it's hard for, for people in Washington to do the right things when they need to. So how, how active are they? I mean, these are the people with really the most to lose immediately. How active are they in phoning their reps, emailing their senators, really participating in the process and, you know, using whatever leverage they might have. Sure. Well, there's a difference between advocacy, you know, ca calling your members of Congress and advocating for them to do the right thing and, and being in the more overtly p partisan things like endorsing candidates and giving them money and things like that. Yeah. And so, so, you know, we are very, very active on the legislative front, on the advocacy front. And, uh, but we do it equally with, with, uh, with both Republicans and Democrats. And because of that, we have, you know, great relationships on both sides of the aisle. Randy Irwin with the National Federation of Federal Employees. Some good insight, intel. We really appreciate you joining us today on a Sunday. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Up next, we take that and so much more to the roundtable. Stay tuned. A lot on the plate for the roundtable today here to mix it up. Introductions first. L'Oreal Arscott is an attorney and chair of the Miami-Dade's Independent Civilian Panel. Marilee Cancio, community leader, attorney, chair of the Greater Miami Expressway. Rafael Yanis is an attorney and political animus, a, analyst. Political analyst. Tom Hudson is not an attorney. <laughs> Senior economics um, reporter and special correspondent at WLRN. And it is so great to have an all-star crew here today. Thank, Thank you, you for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thank Little, you are you friends again? We're yes. friends again. We're, we're friends. friends. We're friends. We're friends. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, okay. Tom Hudson. Yes. Numbers man. Yeah. First question. I mean, you listened to Randy Irwin. We watched... <laughs> the yeah. drama overnight. I, I was sleeping overnight, but I watched it before I went to bed. Um, what economically for South Florida? What was on the cliff there? Well, I think certainly the paychecks for the yeah. thousands of Floridians that are employees of the federal government. Uh, there could be, if, the, if, if there is a shutdown in the months ahead, if there had been a shutdown beginning today, it could have been the paychecks for all those contractors that have uh, a business with the federal government that rely on it. Now, some of those uh, Matt Gates-aligned Republicans on Capitol Hill talked about this wouldn't be a government shutdown if we get there, it would be a government slowdown. Because the amount of the government 
government budget that was really um, under scrutiny here was a relatively small amount, still trillions of dollars, but 11% yeah. of overall spending. But those have real impact in the households of Americans that have direct impact with federal government. And then, of course, the, the, the overall impact between Social Security, Medicare, and just the services that Floridians rely on without perhaps not acknowledging every day from the federal government. Right. Well, aside for, let's stay on the uh, paychecks for a little bit, um, I was interested to, to see Irvin was talking about paycheck to paycheck livers. And that's a, that's a significant amount of people who have no savings, according to a lot of the studies that we see. But it really is a, you know, people who live paycheck to paycheck, people who are in Social Security. There's, South Florida has a significant number of the population relying on those paychecks. Nobody would win. You know, it would be a lose-lose situation. Uh, yesterday I called uh, our daughter-in-law, the one that is getting married next weekend. She has an air traffic controller in Michigan. And I said, how is this going to affect you? And so she said, no, it's okay, you know, we'll get paid later. But, you know, it's a young couple, they don't make that much money. Uh, her husband is in flight school, so it's like one paycheck, she's the main breadwinner. Would have been very scary for them, just like it would be for so many other people. Congress has one job, which is to balance the budget. They're well, elected not to balance go there. the budget, or, but, to, or, but to, sorry, to pass a budget. I'm sorry. The balancing is what's in play at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> really. The rest we, of us households should, have to balance yeah, our own yeah. And the state yeah. of Florida does that. That's right. And I really wish That's that the right. federal government did the same because how long can we continue spending more than what we bring in? Which right. is what's happening. That's the deficit that continues happening. Yeah. You know, well, I that's the fight. Glenn, a part of what leads to this issue is that the hard right wing conservatives and the Republican conference as a whole talks about spending, single issue spending bills. So there are supposed to be 12 bills passed by Congress, sent to the White House for the president's signature or veto. And we have been in a constant state of omnibus and continuing resolutions of spending mechanisms since the mid-90s. And that's what causes this frustration. However, it was super dangerous. It was extremely dangerous for the Republicans on the hard right wing to be pushing us towards the brink of financial catastrophe yet again. And millions of Americans who depend on the paychecks, over 50% of American households live paycheck to paycheck and don't have enough savings to handle a $500 emergency. All right, so thank you for that segue. So let's talk about that hard right wing. <laughs> because, well, interesting, every South Florida rep and senator voted for yep. this yes, continuing resolution. That's right. That's right. Um, all bipartisan, everyone on board. Mm -hmm. The hard right wing is an interesting term because um, depending on the parties of our South Florida reps is kind of what they're calling this group of people. So in, uh, in X Twitter, I'll never get used to X, <laughs> <laughs> the, the um, platform formerly known as Twitter. Twitter. So Debbie Wasserman Schultz, Democrat, Weston, called them the MAGA Republicans. The MAGA Republicans blinked. And um, Carlos Jimenez, Miami Republican, mm -hmm called them his inflexible colleagues. <laughs> what do you call them, L'Oreal? I think that terminology is very telling. Um, you know, similar to what we referred to the last go-round, they're the boisterous minority. This is a small fragment of the Republican Party, and we by no means mean to indicate that they reflect the ideology of the entire party. Um, but their stances are very interesting, and they take such a staunch stance. What's telling about that 60% of Americans that live pay paycheck to paycheck, they have to be concerned about how to feed their children. Meanwhile, that 
boisterous minority, they was they would have still gotten paid if the government did shut down. And I think that's something that our politicians really need to take into consideration. This stance on the Ukraine um, and having certain items in the bill or not be in the budget is just really concerning. Why is there such an opposition to having funding for Ukraine? Why is empowering Russia a good idea? other than this is the ideology that's pure rhetoric, that lacks substance, that is a very hard line for that group. Well, I think it, that, well, I'm not going to say, you can talk about that. I think it goes to, you know, does the money stay at home or does the money go away? That's it. I, I, yeah, I, I, I don't think that it's an issue of not helping Ukraine. We've helped to tune to so many billions of dollars. It's an issue of, we, we, we have 50% of Americans that don't have $500. So that is an issue. We need to empower Americans, American businesses, and control our spending. You know, this was, it was not a partisan fight, Rafael, was it? It was not a partisan fight at all. It was, you know, I want to hear your sort of analysis on the Republican versus whatever that group is called of Republicans. Well, they, they yeah. self-style themselves as the MAGA wing. You know, Rep. Matt Gates was on this week uh, with George Stephanopoulos before this program, and yeah. he, he himself called them the MAGA wing Republicans. And they are proud, and he, he he's claiming that this is a mechanism for them to show the American people how the spending actually happens. And he's trying to paint Speaker McCarthy alongside uh, the minority leader, Hakeem Jeffries from the Democrats, and President Biden as all being in cahoots. And the reality is you have this boisterous minority, or you have this minority within the Republican the Party. BMs. The BMs. We're going to be yes. calling the BMs now. Uh, <laughs> the healthcare community has a different word for that. Oh, <laughs> oh no. So, <laughs> No. Yeah, so I, I, I'd be careful. But the reality is these, these boisterous minority members, the MAGA wing, they are proud and they, they go back to their constituents and say, look what I accomplished. And it's really an exercise in futility. If they were serious about getting 12 single spending, uh, single subject spending bills in front of Congress, they would start by doing what the average American, according to public polling, Pew Research Center talks about, the average American would be in favor of Congress doesn't get a paycheck. Congress doesn't right. get any benefits until they pass the spending bills. All right, let's put that in the hopper. We need to take a quick break, but we have so much more for the rest of this hour. A lot of South Florida news for this all-star group. Uh, starting with next segment, we have the college board for Broward College is about to pick a new president. So many questions surrounding the resignation of Gregory Adam Hale. We take that up when we come right back. This week, the Board of Broward College will get its first look at those applying to be interim president, a move meant to keep the college full steam ahead after the sudden resignation of President Gregory Adam Hale. Since emailing that resignation two weeks ago, Hale has not publicly explained why he resigned. At the emergency board meeting right after, it's clear the trustees were blindsided. They heard from a lineup of who's who in Broward begging them to make him stay. As chairman, I can assure you this would be a massive blow to the foundation on its mission. What does it say that this esteemed man with these accolades, that this college that has thrived in these last six, seven years, has walked away with a moment's notice? I do just beg you, as so many people have here today, to please consider working with President Hale. 
At that meeting, a baffled board voted to keep the communication open with him, though this week Hale made his resignation final. I don't know why he took this course of action, and in that respect, I don't know how much control the board has over the outcome of where we're going. But I do concur with everyone in this room that there should be a dialogue about it. And I do not know why. Um, it sounds to me like none of us know why we are here. We invited President Hale to be with us today. His email really is the only public communication that he's had, and in it, he does not give a reason. In fact, he says, um, for without without cause, which I guess is part of his contract. Mary Lee Cancio, you know Greg Hale. What what's up? So I don't have any personal knowledge of exactly what happened. Only what I read in inside higher ed. Right, like everybody. Yeah. yeah. And but I've known him for many years. Well, the seven years that I served at Miami Day College, he was general counsel for Broward College before he was president. I think if you ask anybody, he's a very nice guy, very likable, and you saw so many people speak so highly of him. But there was a change in board. There's a change in culture, and the new uh, board chair recently appointed know had some questions for him and according to public records that uh, inside higher ed obtained uh, she wanted a meeting with him to ask the status of finding the new uh, chief uh, information officer the new uh, chief operating officer there was another uh, key position that was open and she had also asked him for a memo detailing all his board positions, whether he had obtained consent from the prior chair, what was his compensation, how much time he took away uh, from the college. So I think a combination of things created this moment. He never submitted any confirmation that he had received approval. There was no disclosure of any outside board compensation, and it could have, there could have been a conflict of interest with one of his board positions and a construction project. So I think all of that combined led to his resignation. So the headline on that is that the new board chair was asking a lot of questions, mm -hmm. to right. totally legitimate for a board chair to ask. Um, and so if you're a CEO of a corporation, you answer to your board? You know, there's there's still lots of questions here about what led to President Hale's making the decision to resign. I, I was with President Hale five days before he released this letter uh, at uh, uh, um, two different events, one at Broward College and one a, a business event. There was no indication uh, clearly that he was thinking about this. Of course, the event had nothing really to do with his tenure at, at Broward College, but it was resounding in terms of the folks that were at these events in support of what he has been doing at Broward College under his leadership. But there were questions, as you mentioned, personnel questions about his personnel management, questions about uh, about student enrollment, which traditionally dips at uh, uh, community colleges like Broward College, when there's an unemployment rate of 3%, people are out in the workforce instead mm -hmm. of getting training in education. There was questions as well about uh, general leadership um, uh, and relations, employee relations, labor relations with the school. How those may have contributed to a relationship that President Hale had with the board, we'll have to wait and see if he decides to uh, answer some of those questions. And it was so interesting to see, to your point, 100% support, including, it seemed, from the board and the mm -hmm. chair, really anxious to keep working with him. L'Oreal, you know, the elephant in the room is this is occurring at a time where statewide the governor is replacing boards at colleges where there is a change of policy or there is a change of culture. 
Um, there is no indication of a change of culture, no indication of a change of policy at Broward College. This, this doesn't look like that. Well, yeah. it, it just appeared there's something definitely rotten in the state of Denmark, if you will. <laughs> there is an undercurrent. I love when we have Hamlet quotes <laughs> yeah, on the right. table. Sometimes we have to spice <laughs> up some things. Um, but it just appeared that there's an undercurrent that we are not aware of, right? It appears that there was some um, concerns, not just with the board participation, which was always public records, even on uh, the Bauer BCC's uh, website, right? All of his accolades and all of his attendance and all these, all, all of his activities on all these other boards are definitely present. Um, but what was concerning is that the undercurrent appeared to be that Mr. Hale saw the writing on the wall. Why do you say that? What? It appeared that based on the questions asked, the detailed questions that were asked regarding his involvement and his payment on those boards, that there seemed to be something else afoot. And the fact that in the last six months, it was three board members that were appointed by DeSantis. And we see this movement where there has been replacements of university presidents by uh, either former representatives or someone else who's connected to the Republican Party there's something else abreast that we're just not aware of. The only other public record that we saw is that um, in some of the meeting minutes, there was additional questions regarding personnel. Yeah, the, um, the minutes actually, I, I might say the minutes are all online, they're all public record, and anyone who's really interested in getting into the weeds in this, I mean, those are very instructive to sit in and listen to the meetings. But this is all speculation for us, right? So all we know is that, you know, there was a meeting with pre with uh, board member, uh, the chair, the chair, Barber. excuse me, mm -hmm. Yard Barrel, uh, and then less than two hours after that meeting is when the resignation letter was submitted. And as you all see from that resignation letter, it is extremely detailed, highlighting all of the accomplishments under the president's term, yeah. all of the awards that the university won, all how he loved working with his colleagues and his students and all of that. Um, but yet, that letter was written uh, impeccably within such a short time after that meeting. Oh, good it's, observation. It sounds like there was a buildup that we're just unaware of at Elena, this time. It wouldn't be South Florida politics without a mystery. <laughs> right. And but you know what, it, because I really, President Hale, please, if you're listening, come sit with us and let everyone know what you're thinking, what's in your head, because, because there is this vacuum and we're all filling it. Right. right. So the reality is everything that L'Oreal just said is what the community's talking about, what folks have to guess. We're in a guessing game. What I'm going to guess and what I'm going to speculate is it's a good time to be a well-connected Republican in Broward County mm -hmm. who may have aspirations to hold that top job. Ah, but wait, there is a policy at Broward College that remains for Tuesday, there are applications, that the next, it'll be an interim, interim. president, yes that the next interim president must come from the Broward College community, present former employee board I'm of trustees. I'm not talking about the interim, however. I'm talking about You're the talking next long-term long permanent contract hire. And to believe that the governor's office won't be involved and that the governor won't be involved is a fool's errand. Or that they couldn't find or that they couldn't find an interim president who isn't connected or who is connected to the university who is also connected to the Republican Party. That's not far-fetched, right? It's Broward County. You know, it's Broward County. Some names for us here. N no names. Oh. <laughs> Not today. All right. Well, um, we've got so much more to talk about next. Miami's mayor, high-profile, high-priced VIP events. We talked about that last week here with him, and the ethics investigation at the state level. And that is for the roundtable next.
Miami Mayor Francis Suarez right here last week under some scrutiny for some of his travel and appearances at high-profile, high-priced VIP experiences at sporting events like Formula One with Miami hedge fund operator Ken Griffin. But right there is the World Cup in Qatar with soccer star David Beckham, those people who also do business with the city. The mayor correctly said the Miami-Dade Commission on Ethics closed a complaint alleging the mayor failed to properly disclose gifts, but county ethics closed it without investigating because of its rule that the complainant has to have firsthand knowledge. But during that same conversation, the mayor did acknowledge an ethics investigation also underway at the state level, and this week we learned that is going forward. In the case of Formula One and in the case of, uh, of, of Citadel, I paid for that <laughs> myself. And in fact, I disclosed it to a member of the media when I didn't have to. I think there are, there are laws and there are rules and you have to follow them. And so if you pay for something, it is not a gift. So therefore it does not have to be disclosed. All right, so I know you, you couldn't hear what the mayor was just talking about. He was making the point that if it's a gift, it has to be disclosed. If it's not a gift, it doesn't have to be disclosed. How you apply that to his appearances at Formula One and at the World Cup, which is what the ethics investigation is about, I need an attorney. Glenna, you asked a question <laughs> at least three times that I was counting last Sunday, which was, why didn't you just pay for it outright? Why didn't you just, I'm, I'm, I'm changing your words a little bit, but you were asking if- Instead of getting reimbursed. Instead of reimbursing yeah. the, the Ken Griffin you know, team and Ken Griffin himself, you were asking a fair question, and unfortunately you didn't get a fair answer. And the so, community is owed an answer. Yeah, and and that I think you know, Mayor Suarez is a very likable guy. And he's the he's best chief marketing officer of the city. <laughs> I've said this to his team. I've said it to other folks. He is the love him or hate him. He is the best yeah. chief marketing officer the city of Miami and Miami-Dade County as a whole has ever had. His how can I help tweet did more for our yeah. community than all other prior mayors combined to get people to see Miami as something other than a tourist destination in South Beach. Mm -hmm. So so now there is... Um, so he is highly likable, but he has yes. to give us answers. Exactly. And so the answers that really were not forthcoming, and, and maybe the state ethics will be able to get to those, uh, I'm kind of wondering why don't... Why doesn't he just produce documents? Yeah. Prove it. Right, it? right. Is there a distinction with no difference here. The difference is if we go get a cup of coffee and somebody else pays for it, for my cup, and then three minutes later I give you the $3, was the cup that you paid for a gift even though I reimbursed you? It's and a, if it, I asked you, did you reimburse, you'd show the receipt with the timestamp. Perhaps, yes, right. So it, are the documents available to clear up any kind of questions here? That's the first question. And if there are, produce those documents. And produce those documents willingly and transparently. So what he was saying also last week was that the county ethics investigation was closed. And he was using that as, see, it's closed. But it really was closed because the complainant had no firsthand knowledge. They never really delved into what he was complaining about. However, the state doesn't have those rules, and the state this week uh, telegraphed to the complainant that they are going forward and assigning an investigator. Yes, I think it's the attorney general's office that appoints an attorney to assist in those investigations. And normally, like every year, the State Ethics Commission receives about 200 complaints, and of those, maybe 50, 60 get really investigated. So, I th But from the ones from last year, Really, they're still all being still investigated. So it's an administrative process. It's a civil matter. And at the end of the day, it's something that it may take a while to, to be resolved. A while as in years? A while as in months? 
I think we may see a more expedited resolution of this considering the other investigations that are pending um, by the FBI. Uh, well, they're unrelated, L'Oreal. Let's not, let's unrelated, be fair but kind to, the, of the to the mayor. No, yeah, I, I think kind of along the criminal, similar, civil. Uh, I think similar to, patterns the, of behavior. He was running for president. You know, there's different things here, so I, I don't think it's fair to put all that bad apples like in one basket or saying they're all the same. I, so I it defer. only came to light because he was running for president. It came to light because he finally had to make these disclosures. So the million-dollar question that I'm wondering, as a former municipal attorney, is. Every year, government employees, or excuse me, all the elected officials, had to submit financial disclosures. Mm -hmm. So I'm trying to understand why the financial disclosures were either never submitted, either never scrutinized, or why this is the first time we're hearing about it at all. Um, so it only came to light because of the presidential election. It's the same similar pattern of behavior, um, arguably. It's a similar pa pattern of behavior in the sense that with the consultant job, this was a position where he was being paid $10,000 a month by a consulting firm that was doing business with the city. That should have been fully disclosed. And according to that company's internal documents, thanked him for helping them with some zoning issue, which, which in our conversation last week, I asked him, what were you thanked for? And he, and he didn't know. Right. He, he proclaimed ignorance to, to yeah. knowing what that was. I think this came to light. One of the other things that he acknowledged in the interview in the conversation with you last week is the financial disclosure came about, you're absolutely right, because of the presidential ambitions that he had and the presidential filing requirements, which are much more stringent than the state requirements that we have. So I think I think there's some there's some play there that uh, Florida Ethics Commission and legislators ought to look at. Like why are the state regulations perhaps so much more looser in terms of financial disclosures for publicly elected officials? I think the other thing here is just the optics, right? To, to reference exactly. uh, uh, Mayor Suarez as as a chief marketing officer for for Miami and Miami business done wonders for that over the course of, of his administration, certainly. But the optics of this, along with, of course, the, the charges that uh, uh, Miami Councilman faces, Miami Commissioner faces, and kind of confirmation of the past bad deeds of Miami is just a messy place to do business. And that's what I mean by that pattern of behavior, is this appearance. Now, it may be nothing. It is he tainted be, by the rest of Miami's issues? I don't know that it's, he's necessarily tainted by the rest of Miami's uh, issues, but, you know, when I was younger, my grandmother used to tell me, show me your friends and I'll tell you who, who you are. So he may be tainted by Miami's issues, but the bigger picture is, is also that, you know, we are in a situation where the mayor is giving off the appearance of impropriety. So even if the consulting firm was a Chinese wall, even if he was completely unaware of that email as he tried to persist in the interview with you, he was completely unaware. Uh, okay, that's great. It doesn't appear so because you were on the payroll. And at the same time, this issue was being pushed forth. Same way, as far as this trip, why didn't you just pay it outright? You've been an, a politician shortly, exactly five years after you were a licensed attorney. You were barred in 2004. You first got uh, to city council in 2009. So you know all the rules governing candidates. Is there, you know, aside from our world and a very engaged audience that watches our world, do people, do people care about this? I think people care. You know, my my family, we don't live in the city of Miami. We're in Miami -Dade, unincorporated Miami-Dade County. And the city of Miami mayor and the city of Miami commission gets seen by the rest of the world 
as being Miami. There's all, oftentimes folks don't realize there's a county commission, a county mayor. <laughs> we know that locally, but outside folks don't know that. And especially when you have, you know, Lionel Messi coming to join Inter Miami, when you have the stadium deal coming through, all these big projects, you have Ken Griffin bringing his, his company, his Miami is a brand and the city is about this big. Correct. <laughs> and that's part of the challenge where he, he's elected by a subset of the county, but he really represents the whole county. Yeah. All right, well, TBA, we <laughs> shall see, but uh, we are so not done yet because up next, South Florida schools, two of them, blindsided by the governor. And what does China have to do with that? That's next. More than a month into the school year, two South Florida private schools and the students there learned they were suddenly being cut off from state voucher funding. Why? Because of, quote, ties to the Chinese Communist Party. News to the Sagemont schools in Weston, and now they're scrambling to help families continue paying the tuition. The prep school is locally run, follows Florida and federal curriculum standards, and is owned by a company controlled by an investment group uh, owned by Chinese nationals in Hong Kong. The move was announced in a press release from the governor's office that included reminders of new state laws targeting the Chinese Communist parties. And so with that, we turn to Sagemont School, who has not publicly commented, issued a statement, um, kind of benign, didn't really answer many questions, but L'Oreal, I, I just, um, I guess I went, what? What did you, when you heard that, what was your reaction? Of course, the original uh, reaction was uh, knee-jerk, right? Like, what? What is happening? What are the connections to China? But politics aside, my first thought was, what about those students who are impacted 100%, by it? One hundred percent, of right? course. So the money that was stripped from the school was money that was went towards funding a child's education. So that's concerning for parents who needed that assistance. The other concern that I had, Glenna, was whether or not the school had an opportunity to address these allegations. You know, there's a thing called due process. I know it's not applicable in administrative hearings sometimes, not really, but it would have been great if the school could have been put on notice prior to receiving this information like we all did in media reports so that they could address it and, and attempt to correct whatever the concerns were. Well, I think on the bottom of its website, it's, it kind of acknowledges the ownership, the company is owned by a Chinese invest or investment firm who's owned by a Chinese national. But, but that in and of itself, and I don't mean to interrupt you, Glenna. It interrupt away. That's what the roundtable is about. It doesn't, uh, <laughs> even though it may be owned to, it's kind of removed also. It's held by a holding company that's, you know, it's a bit removed. There's a commission the saying it's more than Hong Kong. Exactly. Yeah. The substance of what's being taught to these students. I understand the governor's concern was that he didn't want the indoctrination of communism to these students. That doesn't seem to be connecting to me. The governor's office offered no evidence of, of a connection that it's stated there was a connection perhaps it was the ownership structure that was the connection perhaps I think that's what the connection administratively was that was enough for the governor's yes. office to pull these funds but it ought to say that that that's what the reason behind this was you know but this is a pattern here right there was two other points uh, regarding China and the and the um, um, and the DeSantis administration one is the real estate law right that that was passed in this latest legislative session uh, really banning Chinese nationals from buying property within a certain area in Florida and essentially all of Florida is covered by that that's being adjudicated in the courts mm -hmm. and secondly in 2020 
the uh, the governor's office put out a request to put out an order essentially for state agencies to say you must go investigate any vendor that you're doing business with to see if there's any ties to the Communist Party of China. That hundred thousand letters were put out and they found exactly zero connections. But that 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 directive actually kneecapped Florida law enforcement agencies across the state because the best commercially known drone manufacturing company is a Chinese firm called DJI. Some of the viewers probably own DJI drones. And the governor's office went after state and local government saying you can't have DJI drones or any, any technology related to the Chinese government or chi originating in China. That caused an immediate grounding of all these drones, and it caused an issue to scurry and try to find alternative drones, which there aren't many competitors. Well, the, the governor would then say, all right, here's here's the law, and now let's figure out how to Look, meet it. But I, one question for you. Sure. To your point, the money follows the students. These yes. are students' money. But this school is a for-profit school. So, you know, the argument can be made that the profits from the school are going to China. Correct. and. Effective July 1st, a new real estate law that affects not only China, but right. Iran and North Korea, Cuba, Venezuela. It's saying, you know, if you're Chinese national, that you're not, uh, you don't have a visa to live here, you're not a citizen of this country, you cannot own property here. So what, this what is- What has that, you're a real estate lawyer. Exactly, what so has that since, done? since July 1st, all, in all my closings, the sellers and buyers have to sign a document saying that they're not from one of the restricted countries. And effective January 1st through the end of next year, if they already own property, which is the case here, they've owned it for many years, they have to register. And in some instances, they're probably gonna have to sell the property. So I think it's interesting because just like Cuba, just like North Korea or Iran, the people from China with this kind of money, they are connected to the Communist Party. And I don't see any problem in taking the, the drones down that are made in China, just like there's an issue with TikTok and privacy. And to your point about who owns the company, could be a local company owned by another company, effective January 1st, anybody that has a corporation or a limited liability company, whether you're American or foreigner, you have to submit your driver's license of any director and any beneficiary starting next year is the Corporate Transparency Act. That's going to be huge. It's going to be huge for it's litigators huge. trying to pierce the corporate veil. <laughs> right, right. This, is going to, this is going to be attorney payday. Oh, yeah. yes. <laughs> but, well, they take it away on insurance and torts and, <laughs> and they, they give it on back. other. Right? So to Mary Lee's point, Glenna, uh, I, don't, I don't think any sensible Floridian watching the show is going to say that they want deeper ties with the Communist right. Party right. or North Korea, Venezuela. You know, that's not on the table. The issue is when it came to the drones, it was how quickly and by surprise, the same issue L'Oreal's asking, the, my thoughts were with the students as well. What happens to the students and their families mm -hmm. and the interruption? I'm the child of an educator, right? A public schools educator, but I'm the child of an educator. And I'm worried about what happens to those mm -hmm. students when it's a surprise decision, right? There, no, no due process necessarily uh, applied in this instance, but the governor's office could have been much more transparent. Exactly. It doesn't take a leap of logic to take uh, any kind of corporate structure that includes a Chinese national in Hong Kong or Singapore to say, well, maybe there is a connection to the Communist Party, right, in China. Uh, that's the way that that economic system operates. But the transparency that we would like here, and, and the parents would like, the staff would like, and voters would like, in terms right. of the decision-making process that led 
to this specific act. Well, why is that going to be moved to another, private, uh, to another public school they, unless in great schools? The money follows them. But to right. Tom's point, I, I want to know, does the governor's office, we deserve to know, does the governor's office have actionable intelligence right. about those ties? Exactly. Then put them on That's the public right. record. And, and why not inform the parents since we're so concerned about giving parents the because they just, safety, right? they just found out. The health, welfare, out. and safety. That's what came out in the governor's order because he has to quote against the statute. Tell us what is specifically endangering them. See that clock? We are out of time. <laughs> Thank you so Thank much. You. I learned so much. I think we all do from very smart people talking about things that we don't necessarily agree on. Tom Hudson, L'Oreal R. Scott, Mary Lee Kencio, Rafael Yanis. Love you all. Thanks so much for your Sunday. You. We'll be right back. <laughs> or listen to our podcast, just scan this QR code right there with your phone, and it takes you right to the This Week in South Florida section of Local10.com. Please do get in touch with us online about anything on your mind. There's all the ways to connect with us. We're very easy to find. Have a beautiful Sunday, and we are grateful for your time. Thanks for being with us.